Hello, and welcome to World Canvas Studio from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Art Building West on the UI campus. Our program is called The Human in Human Rights, First-Person Global Perspectives. This is the concluding event in the symposium Social Justice After Ferguson, a two-day in-depth exploration of social justice issues meant to explore the intersections of race, class, gender, violence, civil rights, and the criminal justice system in the United States. During the first part of our conversation tonight, we'll expand the discussion of social justice beyond our own nation's borders. We're fortunate to have three members of the 2015 International Writing Program with us to offer their perspectives based on personal experience in their home countries. They are Elle Jones from Canada, just next to me here, uh, Haris Khalik from Pakistan, and Homera Kaderi from Afghanistan. And joining them is poet, journalist, and director of the International Writing Program, Christopher Merrill. Thanks for being here, Chris. So I would like to ask each of our guests, to, uh, particularly those of you from outside the US, to talk about some of the most troubling social justice issues from your home countries. What are the things that you are most concerned about um, improving in the next years in your own country? I'll turn to you first, um, Elle. Uh, you are a spoken word activist and a teacher from Canada. You received the Poet of Honor uh, Award at the 2015 Canadian Festival of Spoken Word. And I understand you use poetry in prison outreach and youth engagement. Yes, so I'm actually going to read a poem, so I'm going to try and keep my comments short so I don't go over time. But um, we started a radio show. So we have a radio show that we actually do with people inside the prison. So they call, and it's very illegal. It's not sanctioned by the prison authorities, although they kind of turn the other way. Um, it actually started because a young man, a young black man, uh, he was walking on the street. And people never think this happens in Canada. A young 18-year-old black man walking on the street with his girlfriend, a drunk white guy who outweighed him by 100 pounds, uh, started harassing him, following them, yelling racial slurs. He pulled a knife, said, get away from me, man. The guy kept coming, kept coming, kept coming. Eventually, he stabbed him. Um, he thought he got him in the arm. The guy chased him, literally saying, that's all you got for me, punk, and fell uh, dead. And he got convicted of second-degree murder. But while he was awaiting trial, um, he was calling our radio show, and he was writing poetry. And so he started doing poetry. And then everybody else on the range heard him, and they wanted to come and say their name or do a poem or a request song. So it grew into something that we do with the whole prison. Uh, the whole hood listens, like everybody listens, because it's the only time you get to hear people's voices. So everyone in the neighborhood can like hear their son talk when they haven't heard them before. Um, they get to hear music that they want to hear. We have discussions with them about where their lives are going. Um, so it's using arts, but beyond that, we see that as just the gateway. So we have a community center, and we do like literacy work, resumes, uh, reintegration work. Um, and I can't say too much about it, because I did want to read a poem, because talking is boring. Um, so we have an election coming up, like actually on Monday. And 75% of our prisoners in Nova Scotia actually voted in this election, which is we get to vote in Canada if you're incarcerated. So um, they've really been campaigning and organizing each other. And I thought that was, yeah. And at great cost to themselves, they get locked down all day uh, during the voting. The guards take retaliation on them often, and they've just been organizing themselves. And in some prisons, the vote has been, it's been an incredible turnout. But... I wrote this for CBC, which is our national radio, so I was trying to explain to people that don't give a crap about prison rights, something about prison rights, so it's a little soft, but um, here's my prison poem. <laughs> my issue this election isn't popular. Some people would say that it's wrong. It's not a demographic that anyone thinks belongs in Canada, and when we talk about crime, they're the ones we say are the problem. It's not a platform on which elections are won and they're hidden away, so the issues are gone. And most people just hope that the walls are strong. But our politicians will say that they believe in a nation that is just. So does that mean a country where incarceration is dropping except among us? A country where our communities can't trust the police, where black and indigenous people don't ever feel peace, and it's the most vulnerable among us who don't get to be free? Is it okay that we warehouse mentally ill people in prison? Where your chance of conviction depends on your social position? A country where we lock you away for addictions, where there's no beds for treatment and no money for solving the problems, so people get caught in the system in a door that's revolving. The thing is, it's easy to say that they're criminals. Do the crime, do the time is a thing that seems simple, even though so many inside have done crimes that are minimal. I guess if it's not someone you love, you can see them like animals. And when they're out of sight, out of mind, we just don't see the damages. We use solitary confinement even though it's known to be torture, but who knows about that if it's not your son or your daughter? 
You see, in a community like mine, it's not something you can hide. Everyone knows someone who's living inside, and year after year, we have to deal with the pain. And the conditions that people suffer out on the range are brought back to our communities to start the cycle again. And trust me, people want to change, but there's so little support and so few options, we send people right back to the same situation. It's a cycle repeating generation to generation when having a parent imprisoned is the best indication of future incarceration. And children growing up with no parent at birthdays, women going broke with the families they got to raise alone, does tough on crime mean whole communities should pay? And that line between criminal and victim is usually gray when so many suffer some kind of abuse that leads to their prison stay. And so much young potential we just see thrown away now, people will say, do you just want them out roaming the streets? As if the only solution is to keep them behind bars or just throw our hands up in defeat. So just build super prisons, put them behind fences, give longest sentences, write off entire communities as menaces, treat the fact that our most oppressed people are our most incarcerated as just coincidences. But then let's not pretend that we live in a country that's built on equal premises. So I vote for change as a matter of belief. We have to give people the chance to turn over a new leaf. And if we fight poverty and oppression, we'll see our prison population decrease. And our highest crime communities are the ones with the most needs. So no, the rights of prisoners isn't an issue that our leaders will seize. And maybe most of the viewers will just disagree. And like I said, it's easy to ignore what we don't have to see. But there's just one thing I'd like to remind all the listeners. They say you can judge a society by the way it treats its prisoners. Thank you. All right. uh, El, before I go on to, to uh, your fellow panelists, what was your exposure to uh, people who had been in prison or were being sent to prison when you were a younger girl? Um, well, I mean, I don't have any immediate family members mm -hmm. in prison, thank God, um, by, by the grace of God, really. Um, but obviously in our communities, I mean, 42% of our students are, are dropouts in the African Nova Scotia community. Our indigenous communities where people have been in residential schools, incredibly high rates of addiction, over 80% on the reserves. And that's actually the highest rates of suicide in prison, like 8, 9, 10 people will commit suicide like a month. Um, you know, also people that get put in solitary confinement extremely highly. Um, so, you know, if you live in my community, like, a third, it's the same as America, really. Like over a third of the men are incarcerated. Um, African Nova Scotian and African Canadian women are the highest growing group of incarcerated people. So um, I used to teach in a program where all of our students were either coming from prison or going into prison. So it's just not, it's part of our community. And unfortunately, it's part of daily life. Um, the people you love, the people that are your partners, you know, that you love and are partners with that you have to deal with having a relationship behind bars. And there's no support for that. You know, there's no financial support. There's nobody you can talk to. There's great shame about it. People don't express it. Um, I'm not ashamed of it. I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of. You know, you're doing your time. And I think there's incredible, the kind of love you see behind prison walls, um, the support people give each other. Like, yes, it's a terrible place and terrible things happen. But at the same time, there's incredible communities, communities of women that support each other. The guys support each other. Um, so you can look at somebody, I know I, I got to cut short, but I do have to say this because a lot of people don't have contact with people inside and so they just think there's these monsters and it's not. You know, people that have given me the most love and care in my life, people that have been the first to look out for me when something's wrong, you know, guys across the country that are in networks with each other because they've been transferred that will call and say, are you okay, do you need anything? Um, when I was coming here, people that took care of me with that. Um, so I think we don't see that side, and deliberately so, we don't see that side of people. Um, we're just taught to see animals, and we don't see um, that people are survivors. They, they are, my, my um, boyfriend just moved into a cell uh, that his cousin had left, and he had self-help books just stacked, you know, everything from teaching himself jujitsu to health to nutrition, um, philosophy. He's teaching himself, and he's got a 40-year sentence. So you're telling me that that person is worthless? I don't think they are, so... Wow, thank you. Well, uh, that was uh, L. Jones. And we're going to go now to uh, a guest here from Pakistan. Haris Khalik is a poet and nonfiction writer from Pakistan, a campaigner for workers, women's, and minority rights in Pakistan and abroad, winner of the 2013 UBL Literary Excellence Award for Urdu Poetry. And it's a pleasure to have you here, Haris. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. So uh, tell me, what are, what are your biggest passions when it comes to social justice issues in Pakistan? Um, it's, it's a, the answer will be really complex because there are multiple levels of social injustice in the country. Um, let me start with growing inequality and uh, monopolistic capitalism on the rise. 
uh, it's not just about, you know, simply about market economy and, you know, everybody getting a fair chance to have their own enterprise. It's serious monopolies that are, uh, you know, dominating the, the economic scene. And uh, inequality, it's not just poverty. Uh, inequality is growing, which means that, um, you know, there is poverty is growing exponentially. So that is the, a major, major issue. Then we have systematic discrimination against minorities and women because that, ha that has become a part of our law books under the, the martial rule of General Ziaul Haq. And there's a lot of effort to undo that uh, from civil society and from uh, uh, you know, different political parties, uh, not as much uh, through the political platforms, as much through the civil society, I'm afraid. But there is a lot of effort, but still it's a, it's a long haul. And uh, um, for the first time in our history, I mean, if I, the situation has become really complex because for the first time, I mean, we have been, we have fought four martial rules across, you know, in, during our history, over 67, 70 years of independence. Um, but for the first time, the, the, the society has somehow, um, um, you know, has become, uh, you know, uh, more conservative than the state. Um, uh, if you allow me to explain, it's, it is that, you know, even if there are attempts by the parliament or women in the parliament particularly, I mean, there's a fascinating record of lawmaking by women, progressive lawmaking by women parliamentarians, and we've got a large number of women parliamentarians, the only saving grace for the political system there. Um, they, they, they actually, the, the more they push for progressive agenda, society itself, because of, uh, you know, the, the, uh, uh, you know the, the way law books were tampered and the way extremism was encouraged by powers that be over the years, society reacts to that. A, a large part of the society provides legitimacy to uh, conservative uh, uh, laws, which was not the case when I was growing up. I mean, there was, there was a clear sort of a division between the state being oppressive and the society asking for uh, you know, progressive laws and progressive policies, it has somehow changed, which is the, the most uh, problematic part. So there has to be a fight or a struggle or, or a campaign at two levels. One is to keep pushing the state for more progressive uh, legislation and policy uh, formulation. And at the same time, uh, struggling within the social space, within uh, uh, the civil society and society at large, uh, to, to um, you know, for, for uh, more uh, pro-people and more inclusive and, and rights-based agendas. So that is, that is uh, what really bothers us at the moment. Um, then in, in case of minorities, religious minorities, as well as uh, people coming from uh, smaller provinces, uh, the discrimination is systematic, as I, as I said. And uh, so there is a, there is a uh, you know, again, uh, a fight for that. I give you two examples, small examples before I finish. One is that uh, Malala Yousafzai, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the Nobel laureate uh, peace prize, you know, she got the peace prize last year. I mean, we all know her. Uh, she was promoted by the state, but all the right-wing political parties and religious outfits have actually, um, you know, portrayed her as, as an, you know, as evil incarnate, I'm afraid. As somebody who's been working to further Western agendas, so to speak, and, and, and somebody who's actually working against the interest of the, 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 the ideology of, of, of the state of Pakistan. So that is something that you wouldn't have found 20 years, 30 years ago. Uh, the state would have not, would have disowned a person like that and the society would have owned a person like that. So society is, is divided. One example is that. The other example is that when you go to any country, and this I have actually noticed here because I'm very closely following the presidential uh, primaries in, in the US, which are kind of very interesting, really. Uh, um, um, but, um, uh, and I'm, since I'm not a voter, so I would, I would not comment on, on the situation here. But the, the you know, if you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if, you look at the, if you look at Pakistan for the first time in our history, the main political party and the, the, uh, you know, and, and the main opposition party, the party which is holding the leader of the opposition office is not the main opposition party at the moment. The, main the, the ruling party and the opposition party are both right wing. 
Uh, that has never happened in our history. And uh, that actually is a problem. I mean, I, I see it as a major, major problem. I mean, whoever you vote for is a different thing. But for any society, I mean, in India, you see the, in our, you know, our neighbors, you see the, 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 the BJP, which is ruling, which is seriously conservative, um, although, you know, they're liked by everybody across the world because the business leaders support them, uh, and the Congress party. So the Congress is sort of, you know, center, left, you know, and, and then you, uh, in the UK, it is, uh, um, you know, uh, the, the Labour and, and, the, and the Conservatives. And here you have the Democrats and the Republicans. Um, how much left Republic, uh, Democrats are, that's a separate story for the rest of the world. But, but still, you know, I mean, there is, there is a debate. And for us, it, again, you know, in the last couple of years, it's all right. All the, you know, the, the right wing, which, which again, you know, uh, is, it complicates complicates the issues that, you know, uh, from within the political uh, uh, parties, the spectrum, the whole spectrum, there's very little for, uh, for uh, people like us to choose from. So then does this limit severely the kind, of, the kind of impact you can have writing pieces for the paper or whatever? Can you expose uh, a different argument to the public? Well, in case of, you know, there is this something which, which is really, uh, which is, which is you, know, I, you know, I keep lamenting about what the, the state of affairs in the country, but something that we can really uh, uh, take pride in is that there is a, there's a uh, you know, compared to other similar uh, Muslim-dominated societies or, or developing countries, it's, it's a fairly, uh, you know, uh, free press that we have got. And, and writers can actually uh, go about writing anything. I mean, they can be persecuted, but they are persecuted anywhere for that matter. But you know, there, there still is um, uh, a lot of space and a lot of room. And uh, so there, the, the, the debate is going on. I mean, there are, there are spaces. And, uh, but somehow, uh, you know, the whole process of electing governments and, and support and, and, you know, bringing these political platforms uh, uh, to, to the fore is, is rigged. You know, it's, it's, there is, a, uh, you know, big money involved. Uh, and if, if, even if people want to support a political platform, uh, but the platform cannot organize a major campaign, because I'm coming from a country which has a population of 200 million people, it's not easy uh, without, uh, uh, you know, resources to, to organize major political campaigns. So, uh, you know, so that is another. Big money plays a major role uh, uh, in, you know, it's, so that rigs the system. It's not the rigging of, of the, you know, of votes on the, on the polling day. It's actually pre-poll rigging, and which, which is uh, uh, manipulated by, by big money. Well, with that, thank you very much. I'm sure we'll have more time to talk about this at the end. I'd, I'd like to uh, move now to Homera Kaderi, a fiction writer from Afghanistan who is an activist for women's rights, senior advisor to the Minister of Labor, Social Affairs, Martyrs, and Disabled, who now teaches at the University of Kabul. So good to have you here, and thank, thank you, Homera. So um, I've already mentioned your, your interest in women's rights, and I, I think many of us uh, in the audience here know a little bit about your story. You've been in the press a bit here, and I know that uh, your experience of living under the Taliban began when you were very young. Yeah. Uh, at first, I want to speak about the two times, the time of Taliban and the period of this time. And I wanted to compare them together. When the Taliban came to my country, I was so child, uh, maybe teenager, about uh, 11 or 12. And uh, in that period of time, everything was over for me. I was at the home, but I didn't say uh, home. It was for me, it's a jail. I was at the a jail for seven years. Uh, I cannot go, I couldn't go out, I, I couldn't go to uh, continue my, my education, not just me, all of the girls of the, my city and all of girls of my country. And that was so bad period of time. We pass it, but we have a lot of pain from that period. Uh, I can also taste that period if in this time. You know, I wanted to just say one story from that period. Uh, one of uh, very, very, one of my very close friends, uh, married after I think maybe one year, uh, um, her husband bit him, and after three days that woman died in the hospital, and after that 
period until to now, no person asked about the why this woman dead. And that was so, so nice and young, maybe about 16 years. Uh, I always think about that matter. That matter is not for, finished for me because I always think about that girl. Her name was Nesime, so young, and he had also one child. Okay, that was period, that period belonged to Taliban and we accepted this behavior, but after, I think at now after 15 years, uh, we have also another period of time. We can experience the democracy, freedom, and the, about the woman rights in Afghanistan, but the situation, the culture, the tradition is like together, nothing is changed. I wanted to say again a story, and we can compare two this story together. In this spring, about maybe about uh, one uh, six years ago, six months ago, in, in uh, spring, one girl that we named is uh, Farhonda went to the mosque, and in the mosque he knows she knows that the um, religious scholars or we say mullah preach. He always uh, has some sexual abuse about the woman, but they give millet for the illiterature uh, women. And the Farhonda understand about this matter. And for many times, she said to that preach, don't do it about the woman. So the preachers, they have a lot of men, have a plan to kill the Farhonda. They said the Farhonda burned the holy books, Quran Sharif. And the man in the Dutch mosque don't think anything. They don't think about this matter. And just they beat the Farhonde at first. They kill with the wood, with the stone. And after that, they, they burn Farhonde, you know, where in the capital city of one country, in capital city in Kabul. It's a big city in Afghanistan. It's a famous in Afghanistan. They burn that girls, but after two or three hours, they understand that was so wrong and that is a big mistake. It's a big misunderstand. So we uh, just start to say about the history of Farhonde to court and to the presidents. You know, they give us a lot of promise that we jail the person who do it. They take about fifty percent, but in the first uh, of the court, they say us. Okay, we hang off eight of them and a lot of, uh, and others will go to the jail and you will be sure about this matter. But in the during time, they decrease the time of the jail and nobody hang. And the family of Farhonde immigrate to Tajikistan because they also, they cannot to protect of their, her family. I wanted to say we have money. After the 11th September in the US, all of the country came to my country with the army and with the money, you know but nothing is changed. We have a lot of groups that we wanted to change something in Afghanistan, but we cannot, or we couldn't. For example, me as a writer, I'll always write a story of the woman in Afghanistan. I have six books, but at now, I really, really experience the pain, test of pain, because I know I can also have some abuse of men in Afghanistan. I can understand very well the tradition, bad tradition that they also line, red line for me, I cannot do anything. And I want to just, I wanted to say, when I wanted to compare these two periods of time with together, I just so, so, so hopeless because I couldn't do anything with the money and with the health. Thank you. And so, you know, in the United States, we were all aware of the relationship we have with Afghanistan and yeah. this long period of uh, war and then support and then training troops and all the things sure, that are going sure. on now. Sure. From your perspective, um, as I understand it, you had to leave um, Iran. You were not able to finish your PhD in Iran yes. because of, um, well, I can, you can tell us why, but in any case, I knew you couldn't finish it there. But now you have gone back to Kabul. You teach there at the university. How free are you to speak your mind within your position? <sighs> At first, I must to say I really, really respect to all of the soldiers of U.S. and all of the country. I always win understand that one exploded or suicide attack in my country, and some soldier of U.S. was killed or were killed in my city is so hard for us because we understand that that soldier is the son of some mothers. It's not different, you know. When we understand the pain of the, our mothers, also we can understand the pain of the others' mothers in all of the country. So I want to say. 
all of my country, all of my people, respect to all of the soldiers that they are killed in another country, you know, so far from their country. You know, they also, they don't have in the last time of the breast his mothers. We can understand it very well, and you must to be sure, but we cannot do anything. It is the, the first part. But I, when the Taliban was in my country, I went to the Iran for uh, start my education again. That was for me a big chance, just for me, not for all of my girls of my country. You need. Um, I studied my PhD until uh, I studied uh, until the PhD degree. But you know the regulation of the green uh, generation of the Iran about the uh, for protected the, um, against the Ahmadinejad. Uh, I, I just at that time, also at now, I think that uh, we can be together in every place. We, we have, we must to war about the, you know, on behavior, uh, about the behavior on humanity. And at that period of time, I was a person of Afghanistan and Iran, but I was in the war with the, uh, the government. And that they understand and blocked me. They take my PhD degree and they kicked me about uh, 24 hours. That was so bad period of my time. I think I crying for one month because I really, really, really suffering for my PhD and for the past day exam and like this. You know, I was from the a period of Taliban and the PhD was as a gold, you know, golden goal for me. And they take for another time, uh, you know, the scholar, uh, religious scholar, they take my all of wishes again. So I come back to uh, Afghanistan, and after one year, I started again and went to the India for take another PhD. So I have two two PhD at now, <laughs> but one of them is the, in, uh, in Iran for Ahmadinejad, and another is for me in Afghanistan. <laughs> you know, I, uh, the first PhD I gift uh, I give to Ahmadinejad as a gift. I never wanted to take it again. It's a. It's a I never, I, also I don't want to think about that PhD. Uh, but at now I am in Afghanistan. And uh, especially these days, I never think that uh, with a lot of war in that country, in, in Iran, in Afghanistan, I never, I, I, I just, I, I don't want it to be hopeless, but I think all of my time is useless. Yeah, you know, it is waste. I didn't do anything. Maybe I do something for myself. For example, I have two PhD, you know? I have sex books, but I cannot do anything for my country. Because the woman in country, the, in my country, every day they have some abuse, especially sexual abuse. And the woman, the woman until now, the beat in the public place. And, you know, I, I wanted to just say, I, I, I fight with the, um, Period, at the period of Taliban, as a child, as a teenager also, I fight and this time with the inside of the, all of the army of US and NATO and with a lot of money, but I never think that we can do something in my country. I don't know. I don't want to say I'm so hopeless, but something showed to me it is, it will be take a long time, maybe two or three centuries. Well, um, Chris, um, you have traveled a lot around the world, both for your own writing projects, your own journalism, and then also now I know you do a lot of sort of cultural ambassador um, travel for um, the United States and for the arts and whatnot. And you've also had, what, is it 20 years now, um, uh, heading up the international writing program. So you've... But only 15. 14, please. sorry. <laughs> but a good 14. I'm but so, <laughs> so you've, you've met and talked with writers and, and, you know, read their work. How do writers get into, um, in, into these very deep uh, and very disturbing social justice issues in their work as you've you know, experience not only yourself, but with these guests and with others? That's a great question. And, and what I want to start with is to say that the, the wonderful old man of American poetry, Stanley Kunitz, before he passed away, once said that um, uh, he regretted that he hadn't written more political poems. And then he realized that just to be a poet in America was a political act. And when Omera just said that you know, she doesn't feel she's 
been able to do anything. Well, think about at all those years under the Taliban when she couldn't leave her house or her jail, now she has two PhDs and six books. So her singular experience uh, can be held up as an example to all of the girls and women in Afghanistan. It's a, that is one way to testify. And it seems to me that in the international writing program, what we have managed to be able to uh, see over the years are many different ways in which writers testify to social is justice issues in their countries. Uh, they might be more upfront in the way that Elle is in the spoken word poems that she uh, recites so beautifully. They might uh, approach it in weekly articles in the way that Haris does um, in Pakistan addressing particular issues. They may simply testify by their very presence in the way that Omera does. And it's useful for us to be thinking at, when we, as we address social justice issues in America after Ferguson, to, just to be mindful of the fact that everywhere around the world people are in responding in some way or another to uh, the daily news. And uh, how writers do that, well, on some basic level, they keep their eyes and their ears open and uh, try to tell the stories that uh, seem most pertinent to their time. Um, I, I love how Omera says she's going to write stories about women. Well, that's, that in itself becomes, um, that opens up material that for a long time was forbidden. Um, and I'm thinking I was once in Jalalabad on the, in eastern Afghanistan meeting, uh, and I love this, it, 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 uh, American embassies open up around the country, places called American spaces or American corners. But in Afghanistan, they couldn't call them that because they would get blown up. So they called them Lincoln centers. And uh, I've always thought, now that's, yeah, that's, that's a great dodge. Yeah, I, oh, Lincoln, hmm, that's a very <laughs> Afghan name. But there were, around the table, uh, were Afghan writers and academics, men and women. And I loved hearing from, uh, the, there was a, uh, we were talking about um, Emily Dickinson at one point, and I noted that she had bad, bad vision. She couldn't see. Um, and uh, one of the Afghan male writers made a joke about um, an Afghan woman who had uh, a complete hijab. And, uh, she said, oh, he said, oh, she was blind like this writer. And the woman responded with um, a curse kind of poem that was so sharp and incisive, and it put the man in his place. Well, there were also Marines there, too, so that it was not like he could, could do anything more. But, and I thought, ah, this is one of the ways in which a powerless woman was able to respond with by using the language in an, in an inventive um, style. And that's what writers historically have always done in the face of oppression. Well, I wish we had more time to spend with all of you this afternoon. It's been really interesting to hear you, you talk a little bit about what um, empowers you as writers. And thank you, Chris, as well. Uh, we're going to be taking a break here for a moment to bring up our next set of guests. And please thank all of these folks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. This is World Canvas Studio, produced by International Programs, and I'm Joan Kerr. Our discussion tonight is the concluding event in the two-day symposium, Social Justice After Ferguson. Uh, having just heard from Christopher Merrill and our panelists from Canada, Pakistan, and Afghanistan, uh, let's turn our focus now to social justice issues here in the United States. And my guests in this segment are 
Eva Nagao, Managing Director of the Exoneration Project in Chicago, here in the middle. Uh, Eva Nagao has been a member of the Exoneration Project legal team since 2009. She began her career as a legal assistant for the civil rights law firm Levy & Levy, where she focused on wrongful convictions and youth in trouble with the law. Eva has served on the board of several local nonprofit organizations, including the Chicago Freedom School and Project NIA, and continues to organize in the Chicago area for criminal justice reform, acting as a liaison between attorneys, clients, and the Chicago community of advocates. Eva supports campaigns that push for a fairer and more just legal system. So thank you for being here. Uh, Rick Lipke is professor and chair of the Department of Criminal Justice at Indiana University. He's just here to my left. Uh, Rick Lipke works at the intersection of philosophy, law, and criminology, where he writes about legal punishment, sentencing, criminal law, and criminal procedure. In addition to numerous articles, he's the author of Rethink in Imprisonment and the Ethics of Plea Bargaining. His most recent book is Taming the Presumption of Innocence, and it's forthcoming from Oxford University Press. So thank you, Rick, for being here. And Colin Gordon is at the far end. He's a professor and a director of undergraduate studies in the University of Iowa Department of History. Colin Gordon writes on the history of American public policy and political economy. He's the author of numerous books and has written for The Nation, In These Times, Z Magazine, Atlantic Cities, and Descent. His digital projects include Mapping Decline, an interactive mapping project based on his St. Louis research, and Digital Johnson County, a mapping collaboration with the UI Libraries, the Office of State Archaeologist, and the DNR, and the State Historical Society of Iowa. He's a senior research consultant at the Iowa Policy Project, for which he's written or co-written reports on health coverage, economic development, wages, and working conditions. So I have sort of one opening question, I guess, for each of you, and I'll start with you, Rick. Um, you know, coming from your own areas of research and personal involvement, um, how do race, gender, minority status, economic standing um, impact what appears to many of us to be disproportionate minority contact, uneven treatment before the law, and violation of human rights? Um. Well, I think I'm probably preaching to the choir here. Uh, you're not the people who should be listening to all of this, because uh, uh, you probably already know most of these things. Uh, the US has uh, about 5% of the world's population, but we have over 20% of the world's prisoners, uh, about 2.4 million at this point. Um, but in addition to that, we probably have three or four million other uh, citizens who are under some kind of supervision of the criminal justice system. Um, one of the statistics I often give to my students, which uh, even I didn't understand until just a few years ago, is about 80% of all the crimes that go through the criminal justice system are misdemeanors. Um, so fairly minor offenses for which you can't get more than a year in imprisonment, and you often get much less than that. You get put on probation or some kind of uh, community supervision. Um, uh, both the prison population and the non-prison but under supervision population are, of course, disproportionately poor, uh, disproportionately black and Hispanic, um, disproportionately male as well, um, which is an interesting thing. Um, and their involvement with the criminal justice system makes their already difficult lives much worse, um, uh, tarnishes their names and reputations, if they go to prison, they come out, they're psychologically uh, damaged in uh, fairly profound ways, depending on how long they've been there. Uh, they're economically further disadvantaged because many uh, people in prison are in their late teens, early 20s. Uh, this is a time when most of us are gaining education and work experience, and they get out of prison in their late 20s and early 30s, and they're starting from scratch, and nobody wants to hire them, and so they are confined to uh, the social and economic margins pretty much for the rest of their lives. Um, uh, and so, you know, I teach a class on mass imprisonment, and we try to, you know, look a little bit into how we've gotten into this mess uh, really in the last 40 years, uh, um, uh, even Far back as 1970, we only had about 150, 200,000 people in prison in the U.S., and you know we now have 2.4 million plus many other people involved in the criminal justice system. And 
Certainly part of the story has to do with our tortured history of race and inequality. We don't want to do anything about it. I think it also has to do with our ethos of individualism. Um, you know, if you're successful in this country, you get way too much credit for your success, and you get to keep all the money that you've made, even if you've made it off the backs of uh, poor people. Um, and if you make mistakes and you get involved in crime or criminal offending, um, you are in held entirely responsible for that. Um, so, um, and in other countries, they seem to understand that uh, to some extent, individuals are products of their social milieus. And um, so in other countries in Europe, especially some of the Scandinavian countries, uh, if you commit crimes, um, uh, you may not be punished nearly as harshly at all. But even if you're sent to imprisonment, the official aim of imprisonment is the re-socialization of individuals uh, to try to help them get out and uh, get on with their lives in, in useful ways. They also, of course, have much more generous welfare provisions in these countries, which uh, to some extent uh, um, you know, probably reduce the pressures to engage in criminal offending. So um, yeah, it's, it's some weird combination of uh, our, our very bad history of race and uh, our ethos of individualism that has gotten us into this mess. Well, recently there's been some discussion among political figures and people in the public um, about, on the one hand, the three strikes you're out and what that's done to increase prison population among fairly minor defenders, uh, offenders rather, but, um, but also the economic reality of having so many people in prison. It costs the country a lot of money to keep so many people in prison. Do you think it's the economic argument that is making politicians sort of rethink what we're doing here, or is it generosity of spirit? Um, <laughs> it's not generosity of spirit, I don't think. It's, it's, a, it's probably the economic argument to some extent. I mean, I, years ago I predicted it was the only thing that might eventually uh, start to make uh, sense to people. When I moved to uh, Indiana back in 2008, uh, Mitch Daniels was the governor, and he wasn't a terribly enlightened guy, but even he said, geez, we just can't go on doing this. Um, uh, we're imprisoning too many people. It's too costly. Um, but um, we were just talking at dinner, you know, if, if things improve, uh, maybe we can afford to imprison lots more people again. So uh, it's, it's not, you know, you know uh, reducing the prison population for economic reasons is, is uh, probably not a very stable long-term solution. Mm -hmm. Well, Eva, uh, let's talk a little bit about the Exoneration Project and your work in Chicago and, and elsewhere. Um, first of all, please tell us what the Exoneration Project is and then you know, how it is that someone who appears to be wrongfully convicted uh, can grab someone's attention, yours perhaps, uh, and, and ask for a reconsideration of that case. How does that all work? Sure. Um, and following up on kind of Rick's theme, you know, our, the Exoneration Project works to free innocent men and women around the country um, who are incarcerated for crimes that they did not commit. Uh, the way those people get our attention is um, to have a convincing case for innocence. Our project receives thousands and thousands of letters from individuals all across the country, uh, you know, monthly. Um, we receive telephone calls from family members and emails and texts and pretty much any way that people can get their word out of prison, they do, and we receive their, their pleas for help. The um, Exoneration Project you know, is focused on mass incarceration and this question of race and mass incarceration. We have a very narrow focus in this cause of innocence. You know, only, the only cases that we look at are cases of men and women who are innocent, and that is a very small portion of all the people who are incarcerated in the United States, um, but it's not as small as you might think. You know, they have done a lot of research on death penalty cases. Those are the cases that garner the most money for research and the most attention. And they estimate that about 4.1 of the people on death row are innocent, um, which is a whole another topic, I think, in itself. That's about 1 in 25 men and women on death row are most likely innocent of the crimes for which they are going to die for. Um, in Illinois in particular, um, you know, 60 Minutes dubbed us the wrongful conviction capital of the United States. Um, you know, part of the reason that we're dubbed the wrongful conviction capital of the United States is because we have so many wrongful convictions that have been overturned 
it's not because we have more wrongful convictions than other places in the country. It's because people have spent a long time fighting these convictions and bringing it into the public eye. And it just so happens that you know, we're in a place and in time in Chicago where that's a focus for, for people like me and the project that I work for. Um, in Chicago, uh, the governor, Governor Ryan, in 2003, when he commuted all the death sentences in Chicago, um, because he wasn't, he wasn't sure, this question of whether people are innocent, he wasn't sure. He needed to commute all those sentences. You know, he said at the time in 2003, he said, you know, Illinois has the dubious distinction of being the only state who has exonerated more people than they've executed. Um, and at that time, it was 13 people. Um, today, in 2015, it's about 124 people who have been exonerated. Those are cases where people have written us, we've listened to them, we've been a witness to their case for innocence, we've actually gotten success in the courts, which I'm not even going to spend that much time talking about how you get success in the courts, because it's such a small percentage of those cases um, that are overturned. But, you know, that's 124 in Illinois since kind of 1989, it's probably, you know, the year. Um, and that's, that's about, it's uh, 95 of those were Chicago convictions. Um, so the Exoneration Project has worked in this milieu, and we've done, um, done a lot of cases. We've walked 10 people out of prison um, since I've worked with the Exoneration Project. And that is a very, very small number of the cases that we've looked at. Um, and it's a very, very small number of the clients who we have who um, I think will ever get out of prison. Um, and Joan, I know you asked me some of the causes for why people are incarcerated, and so I'll talk a little bit about that and kind of how the Exoneration Project works to hone in on those causes. Um, because the work that we do and the work that we lift up of these innocence cases um, is an important lens to, I think, the wider world about what is wrong with the criminal justice system and in general, um, and you know, how we can bring in people who, uh, like the political candidates you know, this year, and people who are kind of latching on to these issues of mass incarceration and criminal justice and criminal justice reform, how we can kind of bring them into our fold. Um, and innocence work is, is one way to do that. You know, a lot of people who work with juveniles kind of do that same work. It's those sympathetic cases that you can get you know, a more conservative person's ear to really say, you know, hey, look, this many people are wrongfully convicted in the United States, and here's why. Um, the reasons are why you know, 47% of those cases are cases where there was prosecutorial misconduct or police misconduct. Um, you know, 25% of those cases are cases where there was a false identification. Um, there's, you know, it's something like 75% of the, the DNA exonerations are cases where there has been a, a, a bad informant. Um, you know, bad lawyers, bad prosecutors, uh, bad witnesses, these are all things that come into play. I mean, they're all things that these innocence cases can show. This can happen to someone who's innocent, but, you know, it, it happens in, in, in many cases. And so we lift up that work to really try to expose those flaws in the criminal justice system. Um, and we lift up that work to show that there is disproportionate contact. Um, that, you know, out of the 14 people that the Exoneration Project has exonerated in our history, um, one of those persons was white. Out of all the clients' cases, of which we have uh, over 75, a handful of those people are non-minorities. Um, so yeah, I'll pass that yeah. over to you. That's a lot to think about. <laughs> May I ask you one, one uh, more question related to that? So with the people you have uh, been able to um, exonerate, what happens to them afterwards? Some of these people, I suspect, have been in prison for some time. Absolutely. Um, so the people who do walk out of prison, you know, the lucky few, um, they're all unique individuals who have unique incarceral experiences, who have unique cases and come from unique communities. Um, across the board, you know, their lives have been devastated. They've spent long periods of incarceration being disconnected from any support networks that they had or might have had before they were incarcerated. Um, and to be frank, you know, exonerees, when you get that big film crew and you get to walk out of prison and if you're lucky to live in one of the 30 states that might compensate you for your wrongful conviction, um, you know, you get that bright gleam of attention for a second and then you're left alone once your lawyers have left, once I've left, once, you know, the film crew has left and you're left alone, um, you know, the average wait for any compensation is about three years. Um, so you have a person who is an ex-inmate 
but they're not an ex-offender. So they don't qualify for many of the state services or the social services that a normal parolee or someone who has spent a long time incarcerated for has qualified for. And so, I mean, in many ways, they're left in a more desperate situation than we see a lot of people who have been um, incarcerated in general. And, and exonerees, you know, are also people who, the cases that we see are cases that are big cases. These are murder cases. These are sexual assault cases that, you know, have, people have spent a lot of time in prison. So it's not just that, you know, that they, they're walking out and, and they're back in their community. It's, they haven't been there for 30 years. Um, you know, the state of, of people's lives after they're exonerated is, is very grave. And it's just, you know, it's one way to look at the way the state of all these people who have been incarcerated and have been institutionalized um, is very grave. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Eva. Um, Colin, let's move down to you. And uh, as you know, this, this symposium is called Social Justice After Ferguson. And I know that a lot of work you've done as an historian is in the St. Louis area. What can you tell us about the background of, of Ferguson? Well, the, um, I mean, I would uh, add a couple things to the conversation. Um, one is, you know, my expertise in social justice before Ferguson, because yeah. I'm an historian. Um, the other is, uh, you know, I think, what I look at is, um, you know, a more a sort of smaller scale and systematic form uh, of discrimination uh, that culminated in the events in Ferguson. You know, Ferguson is a, a, a small and struggling inner suburb of St. Louis. Um, it was a bastion of a very early wave of white flight in the 1930s. And um, the, the uh, white working class who left North St. Louis for Ferguson then moved on. And so it became what uh, urban scholars call a secondhand suburb. It's the only affordable housing uh, left in the region. And when African Americans finally, after uh, civil rights victories in the 1960s, were able to breach the county line and move into the suburbs, it was really the only uh, affordable frontier. The other thing that, that sort of happened in that process, uh, well, a couple of things. One, one is that over that history, um, African Americans were families were pretty systematically shut out or shut off of the escalator of wealth creation that came with the GI Bill and Fair, Fair House, or, uh, uh, Federal Housing Administration subsidies. Uh, so as African Americans moved into the suburbs, they moved with a stark wealth disadvantage that remains today. Um, so even as African American incomes and African American wages creep slowly uh, into the sort of two-thirds, three-quarters range, um, African American wealth is actually lower now as a percentage of white wealth than it was a generation ago. It's less than 10%. Uh, and all that's the story of housing. Uh, housing over the long haul, and also dramatic losses in wealth during the housing uh, boom and bust, uh, particularly for those exposed to subprime mortgages. But what happened then in a setting like Ferguson, and what, and what laid the background for uh, the shooting of Michael Brown, was it was a very poor community with no property tax base, and uh, it settled on a pattern of predatory policing, what a colleague of mine has called fiscal fracking. That is, paying, paying the uh, city's bills by cracking down on its poorest inhabitants, because there is no other source of income. The major employer in Ferguson, which is a Fortune 500 company with annual sales in the billions, pays about $160,000 in property taxes for a 52-acre campus, because most of it is tax abated. Um, most of the commercial uh, development in Ferguson sits in tax increment financing zone, so they contribute nothing to the schools or to the general revenues. So what emerged in the wake of Ferguson, um, you know, if you read past the sort of shocking racism of the De Department of Justice report, what you see is instructions to the police to go out and meet quotas, to bust kids for jaywalking, to do anything they can to raise money. And then these people get caught up in the system in a, in a very sort of destructive but petty way, they may never go to jail, but they can't pay the fines, they go on payment plans, They're, they have bench warrants out for failing to pay a jaywalking fine three years earlier, and this became, um, this displaced property taxes as the principal source of revenue in the city of Ferguson. Wow, and uh, so what is the city of Ferguson or the larger Missouri community or the federal government, what, what is going to happen next? What's the discussion now that can change some of these structural issues? 
There has been a lot of uh, activity on municipal court reform, in, particularly in St. Louis County. Um, although when the Department of Justice came down with its, its recommendations and its report about a month ago, the city of Ferguson's response was, we would like to do that, but we'll go broke if we do. Um, because they have no other source of revenue. Um, one, one option, I mean, one, one of the most um, you know, destructive disincentives in all of this is our metropolitan areas are organized as a patchwork of municipalities who jealously hoard opportunities and tax revenues. Um, and so good schools get better and bad schools get, get worse. Um, and so if there's not some system of sharing revenues across boundaries for, things like, for important things like schools, um, then I, I think you're due. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do either of you have any comments you'd like to make about what we've seen happen in Ferguson and after Ferguson, other communities with you know similarly horrible situations like Baltimore? Um, where does where does it all end? You asked the tough question. No, well, I'm sure it's a question everybody has because, you know, we, we think we've seen enough school shootings. We think we've seen um, Eric Garner case. We see all these things, and yet, um, and even when we hear some of the descriptions as to why there are these, these um, you know, endemic uh, um, disadvantages for, for certain populations, uh, from where I sit, it looks as though Progress, if it comes, comes very slowly. And I don't see in this election uh, right now, in the primaries, I don't see anybody really talking about these, these things. Well, I mean, I'll jump on that to say that I don't think that you need to, um, and I'm surrounded by professors, so this is going to be a really unpopular thing to say, but I don't think, you know, we all have our jobs to do. You don't have to look at Baltimore, Ferguson, or any one community to talk about this issue. I mean, I can tell you in Chicago that... Um, 32% of our population is black, but only, you know, 75% of police shootings are against black young men. Uh, I mean, the problem is everywhere. The problem after Ferguson is the same problem before Ferguson. It's that black lives don't matter. Um, and as Marion Kaba, who spoke yesterday, will say, they're not going to matter until we make them matter. Um, so, you know, the exoneration project, one way for us to make them matter is to um, you know, delegitimize incarceration by showing that, you know, people are innocent. Um, but, you know, you should delegitimize, delegitimize incarceration by showing that people are being incarcerated because they're black. Mm-hmm. And, and no, people aren't talking about it. They're not going to talk about it. And that's why we're sitting here and talking about it. Right. Um, because we need to make our own books and our own studies and our own media in order to bring that issue to the forefront. We shouldn't sit around and wait for candidates to talk about it. Um, and you guys are going to see a lot of candidates. So, you know, if you want to talk about it with them, do it. Yeah. Well, some, from the point of view of, of a professor, somebody asks you, some, perhaps you're invited to speak before an important panel that could really um, make a difference in the way justice is meted out in a particular state or a particular community. What would you say? Well, you have to do something about the, the problem of inequality in society. I mean, you know, we, we have to do, take steps to, to bring up the bottom because uh, not only does, you know, social and economic deprivation, we know this foments or uh, uh, I'll say foments, precipitates criminal offending because people don't have other options uh, quite often. Um, but um, then you have poor people introduced into the criminal justice system. They're not well represented. Um, they're already bad lives are made worse. Um, but we don't want to, as I don't know why, as a society, do anything about the, the larger problem of social and economic and racial, mm-hmm. to some extent, inequality. That's, I guess only Bernie Sanders is talking about that at all. Um, and, um, and nobody else is talking about it. And, and we haven't talked about that nationally as an issue for... Mm-hmm. A long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Colin? Uh, I mean, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, I agree uh, in, entirely with uh, what my colleagues have said. Um, you know, I also think we need to recognize in fundamental ways that our metropolitan areas live uh, in a long shadow of systematic segregation and that the civil rights movement um, removed some formal legal barriers, but undid none of the damage. And those older formalized patterns of segregation live on 
in fundamental ways that live on in the way in which our metropolitan areas are zoned, in the way in which our school districts are constructed, and in this stark uh, wealth gap between uh, black and white. And so, you know, uh, changing the law does, does very little in that respect unless there are mechanisms to run the film backwards and undo some of the damage. Mm -hmm. Is uh, is Ferguson? What, what's the percentage of black to non-black in Ferguson? Do you know? Is it Fer Ferguson um, is about uh, the entire population is almost equally split now. Um, I I know this because I was just I did work on a voting rights case with um, the ACLU, and we wouldn't have had a voting rights case if the population, um, but the school age population is eighty percent African American. Uh, partly because of the demographics of the African-American and white population, partly because the white kids don't go to public schools. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the responsibility of a community? We just choose St. Louis just because it's, it's right there. Is, is there any feeling, as far as you're aware, within the St. Louis community of right-minded uh, people to, to change this... Um, Oh, I, I don't know, this, this um, rabid guarding of one's own municipal uh, boundaries uh, so that there could be a greater dispersion of, at least in, for the public schools, of um, wealth throughout the St. Louis metropolitan area? It's very, I mean, would that ever, it's could very that thin. happen? It's very yeah. thin. I mean, you're seeing it a little bit on municipal court reform because the county has a role there. Um, you see a little bit of it in... in the region's long desegregation battle in the schools, although much of that is, uh, is not terribly functional. But one of the consequences of having the metropolitan area uh, chopped up into over 200 municipal units is they feel no responsibility one for another. I mean, the city of St. For a long time, St. Louis County, which sits to the west of the city in Missouri, was the white bastion uh, next to the city. Now, most African Americans in metropolitan St. Louis live in St. Louis County. And it feels it's under siege, and the outlying counties, St. Charles County and Lincoln County, and others are the ones turning their backs. It's a moving target. Well, could I get just a, a quick reaction, perhaps, to the, to the um, reaction to the uh, public demonstrations in Ferguson and the introduction of very heavy uh, police and, uh, you know, army equipment and so on? Um, what does that do to a community when... Uh, Obviously, I understand there's an interest in protecting property and protecting lives and so on, but um, it has to it has to engender feelings within that population that feels it has has uh, you know rights to complain, be in the streets, and whatever. I, I mean, I think in, in many ways it just. I mean, what was remarkable is, is in the very early days of the protest, before that the the response was was uh, that heavy-handed. What the African American community in Ferguson was saying was that they were were being occupied because of the nature of the policing, uh, not because of uh, armored vehicles and riot gear, but because this is what the police did on a daily basis. Um, and, and so, in many respects, I think it it just drew a bright yellow highlighter through what was already going on. Yeah, if you look at the sort of the the way in which, especially misdemeanor crimes are treated, uh, you know, mostly these are. You know, poor people who are struggling, who are going through the system, um, they're treated very brusquely. I mean, there's evidence that, you know, most most people arrested and charged plead guilty at their arraignment. There's there's really very little evidence ever brought forward. It's just the police arrested somebody, and so you know it makes them feel like you know the system is set up against them. Um, and when you move in, you know, police with military gear, uh, I mean, it just heightens, gotta heighten all of the the sense that somehow. This is a system that is set up against us, and mm -hmm. you know, sadly, then uh, the evidence is that uh, you know people are less inclined to obey the law because they mm -hmm. don't feel like the law is is serving their interest mm -hmm. in any kind of way. Um, so there's a lot of interesting work on procedural justice that, if you don't treat people fairly, you know, they they're going to react as you might well expect. They're 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 not going to you know they're not going to report crimes. They're not going to cooperate with the police and the criminal justice system. And, and so, mm -hmm. you know, you're just making things worse. Yeah. There was a wonderful line, and um, the federal government did a report in the early 1970s after the Civil Rights Commission had hearings in St. Louis. And they chose as the emblematic story for their report, which was called Discrimination in Suburbia Nationwide, was the first African-American family to move to Ferguson, uh, was the lead in the report. And 
the gentleman who moved there, and there were long quotes of his testimony, but the one that I love is uh, he, he moved in and, and there were threats of, of, of moving him out by force and eventually they'd negotiate that. But he noticed in the, in the weeks and months after he moved in that they stopped picking up the garbage and the streetlights started going out and the services just deteriorated as more African-American families moved in. But he noted there were more police and I don't think they were there to protect me. I think they were there to protect people from me. And that was, uh, it was striking to read that yeah. in last August. Yeah, yeah, last August, wow. Well, uh, lots to talk about here, and I really appreciate the time you've all taken. Uh, Colin Gordon and Eva Negao and uh, Rick Lipke, thank you very much. And um, uh, this is the concluding event in a really interesting symposium, uh, Social Justice After Ferguson. I want to say thank you to Rachel Williams and to many, many departments across uh, campus for having supported this uh, symposium. College of Liberal Arts and Sciences, Departments of Gender, Women's and Sexuality Studies, History, Religious Studies, Sociology and Communications, the Schools of Art and Art History and Journalism and Mass Communication, the Oberman Center for Advanced Studies, the Women's Resource and Action Center, the Center for Human Rights, the Center for Teaching, International Programs, the Vice President's Office for Student Affairs, the Office of Outreach and Engagement, and the Chief Diversity Office. So um, thanks to all of them. Thanks to all of you for coming to hear the discussion this afternoon. The audio recording of this World Canvas Studio program will be available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. Uh, I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you for being here, and good night. <laughs>